This week, we need to spend some time with Kant's philosophy. If we are to understand the central concerns of continental philosophy in the 20th and 21st centuries, one indispensable idea to understand that the concepts, debates and ideas in con- continental philosophy can for the most part be understood understood as BK and AK, so before Kant and after Kant. All the philosophers we study on this course, Hegel, Nietzsche, Merleau-Ponty, and indeed philosophers on other modules on the course, all respond in some way to the prism that are Kant's three critiques, the critique of pure reason, the critique of practical reason, and the critique of judgment. Now, conceptually, let's start, as Kant would, with a panoramic view. The critique of pure reason is really a book about the nature of experience. Kant wrote that he was awoken from his dogmatic slumber by David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, in his uh, prolegomena to any future metaphysics. This applies primarily to Kant's epistemology, but also to his moral philosophy. We sometimes forget that what was so specifically shocking for Kant about Hume's epistemology. Briefly, Kant found Hume's account of causality fall upon the rocks of scepticism. For Hume, we cannot directly experience a cause and its attendant effect. For example, if you eat some strawberry ice cream, say, you might experience a variety of sensations. Sweetness, coolness, the smell of vanilla. But at no point, at least according to Hume, would you experience something called a cause, even if you do have an idea of a cause. This is a bit of a problem for an empiricist like Hume, who thinks that all knowledge is derivable from sense experience. Hume's solution was basically that we experience cause and effect as a type of association, or better, habits of associating. When we cognitively join certain events in our minds, we do so through association, through contiguity, what Hume called contiguity in time and place, nearness, through resemblance, and through causation, all of which are ideas. So, for example, when we think of, say, the Houses of Parliament in London, we might also very well think of Tower Bridge, as they are relatively spatially contiguous. Or if you think of the recent European Cup football tournament final, you might think of England losing to Italy uh, on penalties in the final. So the mind is naturally predisposed to association by likeness or nearness. In addition, our mind also associates causally. So, if you see water drops on the window, it would be plausible that this is because it is raining outside, or vice versa. You might see rain and then remember that the window in your office is not fit for purpose and will leak. We can associate from uh, cause to effect and effect to cause. For Hume, though, causation is a thought, and indeed a very strong one. Thinking about causation implies a memory of the past as well as an anticipation of the future. Indeed, for Hume, most of our thinking and reasoning concerning matters of fact in some way seem to apply cause and effect. However, being naturally predisposed to think in a causal way does not necessarily entail that we know what those causes are, especially since the very things we experience do not present themselves to our consciousness as cause. Hume is less interested in explaining the metaphysical question as to why we associate our ideas as we do, but he is firm, though, that we we do a think according to the principles he's outlined, that is, resemblance, contiguity, and causation. This is where Kant comes in. As Kant is too interested in 
the reasons as to why we associate ideas the way we do. As such, he thought that Hume's uh, selection of association principles is incomplete. Furthermore, and more importantly for Kant, he thought that Hume is just not doing enough to provide an account of our a priori understanding. Now that's an important word, a priori, so a priori means prior, but before or independent of. But what is it before or independent of? So Kant is talking, when he talks about a priori, he's talking about those cognitive structures which are prior to experience. Kant thought that the concept of the connection of cause and effect was by no means the only idea through which we comprehend uh, our experience. For Kant, our experience, both cognitive and sensible, must be ordered in some way. This begs the question as to what precisely is doing the ordering. If, as Hume argued, the self is a bundle of perceptions, or in other terms, a flux of impressions, then how does our mind order each individual impression that we experience? If you think about it, if we say we are experiencing the sound of a melody, we don't experience that melody in a direct one-to-one relationship to individual notes. If this were the case, we could not experience melody at all, only discrete instances of notes. But even our everyday experience of music tells us that that can't really be the case. Our mind must be engaging in some activity, ordering the notes as a form of duration. The question is, of course, in what way is the mind doing this? And more importantly, how can we establish any epistemological grounding of this activity? For Kant, our experience and cognitive awareness is a type of special activity. Kant characterizes our consciousness as a form of spontaneous activity. All cognition is activity. It is a type of doing. The project of the critique of pure reason is to fill out that picture. Primarily, Kant views this activity as a form of synthesis—beg your pardon—of synthesis, or better, synthesizing the elements of our mind that are synthesized. He calls presentations or representations. Kant is trying to make apparent the immediate givens of consciousness, what is presented or presented to our mind, and in turn, what happens to these presentations and what we can do with those presentations conceptually, and what we can, what those presentations do to explain the form of our mental content, although less the mental content itself, although that is important too, as we will see when we discuss questions of intuition and, and, and concepts. More specifically, there are two types of presentation, intuition and concept. And intuition is the immediate and singular presentations of objects, so say, this apple. A concept is how we receive a generic presentation of the object. So any apple, appleness, this orange, that orange, orangeness. Kant wants to argue that before we experience anything, there must be cognitive a priori structures which are actively synthesizing any particular instance of intuition or concept. Uh, as you may remember from your undergraduate studies, a priori means prior to, before, or independently of any experience. What is a priori in our concepts he calls categories, and what is a priori is the general use to which these concepts must be put, those he calls principles. The categories are a set of concepts which we, uh, as with cognitive beings, have or hold a priori. So these include things like unity and diversity, cause and effect, substance. 
What is important here is not exactly which categories we may have, but rather that there may be some, and that we must apply those to the world which we inhabit. As well as delineating what categories are, Kant also wants to explain the a priori nature of our intuitions. This is perhaps one of the most famous elements of the critique of pure reason, and is usually named as synthetic a priori. Our intuitions also have an a priori ordering activity. What is a priori in intuition he calls pure intuition or the form of intuition. So these are all technical concepts, but hopefully I'll be able to make them apparent to you. He is asking what can make any intuition intelligible. If we take our example of the apple again, it is not simply the case that we experience this or that apple. We can only intuitively experience the apple in a temporal or spatial way. Thus, while we are intuiting the apple, we are experiencing the form of intuition as both temporal and spatial. So, roughly, temporal refers to our intuition of inner cognition, and spatial refers to our cognition of the external organization of the world. Our pure intuitions are our space and time. It's quite a strong claim Kant is making. And these two are they are given to us prior. It might even be a bit of a limit to say that they are given, in fact. They are how we organize our experiences. Uh, however, space and time, though, for Kant, they're not really things. They're not things in the sense like that we might think of an object in the external world, like, you know, this cup, this pin, this uh, P, say. Um, but I, I think the idea that Kant is trying to get at with this this notion of uh, space and time is that our that they're not real in themselves. They're just the way we, as finite, mortal, sensate beings, necessarily perceive or even imagine all the things we experience. If there is any part of this week's material I would like you to grasp, it is this one. Thought itself is an activity, but it is only intelligible as an activity if we can understand our understand if we can understand our understanding, our metacognition, if you like, is that it is limited to temporal and spatial organizations. Moreover, that the mind orders experience in this way shows how consciousness itself is an activity, an activity that can only be understood as simultaneously located and temporally unfolding. Now, this will be of huge import for our later discussions of Nietzsche, Hegel and Merleau-Ponty, and as well as crucial to any discussion one might have of significant continental philosophers such as Husserl and uh, Heidegger. I would now like to speak to you briefly about Kant's distinctions primarily his distinction between intuitions and concepts. One of Kant's innovations in philosophy is to make this very radical distinction between intuitions, which are are, our immediate relations to objects, and what he calls concepts, which are our mediated and always somewhat abstract relationship to objects. So famously, let's start with one of Kant's own examples. Kant talked about the the distance between our finger and thumbs on both our left and right hands as we directly think them they are similar but not what Kant calls congruent similar means that roughly the distance between our thumb and forefinger is alike likewise say the angle between I don't know the knuckles of our thumb and forefinger is about the same on both hands 
our left hand and, say, its counterpart, our right hand, have similar characteristics except for their orientation and location. Well, they're not, they're not uh, interchangeable. We use concepts to explain both the similarity and their difference. So, for example, we could talk about equality. They're roughly of the same magnitude, length. They're similar. They work the same way. They're the same parts. Uh, but no matter how similar uh, they are, they are not congruent. Can't go so far as to say that they are incongruent counterparts. Now, this is all very instrumentally valuable, but pushes to say it's useful. But the question remains as to whether or how we grasp those concepts. So, as such, Kant is trying to articulate the difference between the grasping and that which is grasped. That which is grasped, even. What distinguishes a pair of incongruent counterparts must thus have some inner ground or some intuitive understanding, since concepts alone do not explain the difference between both. In order to completely articulate, say, an object's spatial attributes, we need to grasp how it is oriented. And this requires an intuitive grasping of how the body is related to space as a whole. Now, what might you ask is the purpose of all this? Really, this example serves to help Kant distinguish uh, form from concept. Form is the activity of grasping and perceiving phenomena, whereas concepts are the methods through which we classify phenomena. Form is immediate, intuitive, whereas concepts are well, more or less learnt and applied. Or you could you could probably, you know, concepts are learnt and applied intuition. You could even extend it to that uh, formulation. And they are as such mediated. If I describe such an object uh, conceptually, in terms of, say, concept, number, length, or the ordering of its parts, I can find no concept which distinguishes left from right. The angle between thumb and forefinger was geometrically similar, as well as similar in terms of length. The dimensions and the angles are the same. This is what is meant by calling them similar, indistinguishable by means of concepts. Only by referring to intuition can this distinction be made. That is, only by actually being in immediate relation to some one example, real or imagined, of a left or right-handed object. Therefore, something is given an intuition that determines what space is, but which is not equivalent to conceptual terms. Now, I understand that that's probably quite abstract, quite complex, but I think the importance of the example is that it shows Kant's accounts, account of the intuition of space. While we can, through concepts, gaining an understanding of bits of space, so, you know, here, there, length, dimensionality, breadth, this is only intelligible if we have a sense of what Kant calls absolute space. That's quite sort of a com complex notion. Uh, if you think about it, though, the difference between, say, this room and that hallway is only comprehensible if we understand that space is not bounded. It's not defined by particular things, by particular boundaries or particular locations. Space is not a combination of parts. Instead, regions of space are formed by subsequent and contingent limitations. Space, in some sense, is there in advance, and I can sort of delve into space to designate, to classify. So this room, this town, this country, I don't know, 
the space between my head. Absolute space for Kant as a thought extends indefinitely prior to all of the empirical limitations of the world. It thus follows that space is intuited prior to any particular experience which would always involve some act of limiting or or boundary drawing. And it is thus it is given a priori. So we can't really understand a particular object in space without understanding the full concept of space. And in a sense, our mind is doing this for us. Uh, the, the boundaries of any one object or any one location automatically indicates which things are beyond that very boundary. So space is its intuitive form. Any particular space that we might think of, say like a town square or something like that, is only thinkable, it's only intelligible if we have a broader intuitive grasp of, well, of space, of, of absolute space. Now, conceptual form, on the other hand, is understood in terms of specific attributes or properties. So, if we go back to our example of the hand, we can think of the hand in terms of its properties. So its length, its weight, its skin pigmentation, uh, and so forth. But space is uh, is something we think of as a whole, prior to its parts. Now, this doesn't mean we can't think of little bits of space, but our fragments of space, but if those are at all thinkable, they must be understood in light of our intuition of absolute space. Further still, you know, there is only one space for Kant. But concepts always stand for Kant for the many. So in a sense, we have here a version of the ancient philosophical distinction of the one and the many. Even if we are referring to a particular instantiation of the many. In short, the radically different structures of intuition and concepts as presentations reveal themselves when we look at the relation of form and intuition and particular intuitions. So, between, say, space and an object in space, or the relation between the whole and the part, or the relation between concepts and particular instances of a concept. So, like our, our apple and uh, apple-ness. Thus, what Kant is doing is, again, working out the, the that, that old ancient problem of the one and the many. But except he's now doing it not so much in cosmological, metaphysical, or ontological forms, but in cognitive forms. Concepts are abstractive and mediated, where intuitions are tend to be unified and immediate for, for Kant. So that's an important thought, though. Our, 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 our thoughts are immediate our pure intuitions, at least, are immediate. They're spontaneous. That gives us a very dynamic account of what counts for the human subjectivity. Kant's argument concerning time operates in a similar fashion. Time is the ordering duration of experience. Both time and space are the forms 
by which we perceive anything in the external world. So if we go back to our example of the melody, you know, we have plenty of concepts to understand a particular tune, so notes, rhythm, tempo, beat, phrasing of its song. However, we cannot grasp a song without already intuiting the general form of time beyond the song's sort of immediate unfolding duration. Kant is explicit on this, and here I am going to quote to you um, from the Critique of Pure Reason, uh, Norman Kim Smith's version, page 74. Time is not an empirical concept that has been derived from any experience, for neither coexistence nor succession would ever come within our perception. If the representation of time were not presupposed as underlying them a priori, only on the presupposition of time can we represent to ourselves a number of things as they existing at one and the same time, simultaneously. Or at different times, successively. Like space, time also be indicates beyond its immediate experience. If we think of the minutes of an hour, automatically this implies a type of infinity, an infinity of time. Not experientially, but intuitively. So, if we think of this particular hour, we can think of all the other minutes that have passed or are imminent. However, even if space and time orders our experience of the external world, they are not real in themselves. This is to say, they are not things. We cannot conceptualize them as, as objects. Space and time are not like peas which you can pick up with your hand and roll around between your fingers. Instead, Kant thinks of space and time as the essential conditions of possibility of experience. Now, this notion of the conditions of possibility is a distinctly Kantian notion, is, and it is indeed a distinctly Kantian uh, locution. Kant is asking what conditions must there be there for an experience to be possible in the first place. So, two essential conditions of our subjective experience are space and time. Indeed, if we are to have any thought, thought must be, that thought must be at once temporal and spatial. Space and time as forms comprise a, a sphere of, uh, sort of possible relations. As aspects of our experience of the world, space and time are therefore very, very concrete for Kant. They're immediate, they're spontaneous. Which is to say, the way we think, if we want to think of how Kant explains our what our interior life is, then it is spatial. It's, it has a thereness about it, as opposed to its relative. We have a relative hereness to somewhere else. Also, it implies a, a thenness, i.e., as in relation to now, or to the past, uh, or to the future. These relations can, in some cases, at least, be you know, measured in seconds or meters, to be sure, but. We have such we have concepts of such relations, but the meaning of those concepts is irreducibly temporal or is irreducibly temporal and spatial, which is to say intuitive. Now, the next concept I want to get us to think about, and I, I think this is probably one of the more difficult ones, and that's the idea of the transcendental. So what is meant by transcendental? 
Kant often uses the phrase a priori conditions of possibility of as uh, as a shorthand, I guess, or as a shorthand of the transcendental. The forms of space and time are the a priori condition of possibility for us to have experience of things in space and time. But those forms are not themselves within experience, nor are they derivable from it. This is to say they are independent of experience. They are a priori. Similarly, the forms of space and time do not in themselves have any content. They don't say what they don't say what content we're having or anything about the limits found in empirical space and time, and definitely not what sensible matter is to be found. So colour, whatever that might be, colour, temperature, sound, and so on. They are conditions of possibility. The important word there is possibility. They make experience possible. They do not determine experience. Experience comes from the external world, and more on that later. That which makes possible is, for Kant, transcendent, insofar as the relation of making possible is not reducible to logical entailment or physical cause. If we said that the forms of space and time entail or cause something, we would be we would be we would be misspeaking in some way. We wouldn't make sense for Kant. But again, the phrase transcendental subjectivity, which we used above, refers to structures that belong to me, but also, in important ways, are outside or beyond my everyday individual existence or my immediate interior life. In another way, Kant is here demonstrating his commitment to universalism. Transcendental subjectivity is not really a psychological set of attributes which are unique to each and every interior mental life. As such, all humans operate using these principles. Space and time are forms by which we perceive the world. Again, they form the way we experience the world. Even stronger, they are the way we experience the world. We can intuit that space and time exist independently of experience, and thus they are in some sense beyond experience. We could make a culturally relativist argument here, and suggest that the way we perceive time is different in different cultures, or different at different periods of history. I mean, there is there's probably some plausible reason for making that claim, if you think about it. We might have moved from quantitative time, chronological time, from, say, seasonal time or calendar time. But all of that is really irrelevant for Kant, because our understanding of space and time are not acquired. We do not learn them through experience. So while space and time are surely organised in any culture, the common denominator transculturally is that space and time are necessary forms of any understanding which might emerge. Although that cannot be the case for concepts, since we could potentially have different cognitive means and methods of counting, measuring, speaking, and so forth in the different cultures. Another one of Kant's distinctions is relevant here, too. And that is the one between empirical objectivity and transcendental objectivity. That's quite important, actually, this for Kant. So, space and time 
can be conceptualized in an instrumental way. Indeed, we do this every day when we think of this room, this room or that sofa or this time or that time or the start of the lecture or the end of the lecture or the end of the lecture even. We don't want the end of the lecture. Or, and or thus, but thus, yeah, so getting back to it, <laughs> despite my flippant digression, uh, space and time can be con certainly conceptualized in an instrumental way and in a useful way. They, uh, and they are thus an essential prerequisite for experiencing the objective world, but more importantly for Kant, space and time engender our transcendental subjectivity, since they delimit what we can and cannot think. In other words, they are the essential forms through which we understand the world, and thus they are the grounds of all possible, for Kant at least, philosophical debate and discussion. Now, I want to move on now uh, to Kant's account of noumena and phenomena. This is an important part of the critique of pure reason because it really sets the limitations of what we can and cannot know. Now, of course, I've been talking a lot about a priori and intuitions, but what can we ask of the experience of the external world which furnishes the data and impressions which constitute our immediate experience. Thus far, I've talked about the nature of transcendental subjectivity. It is not as if Kant doesn't think that our experience, senses and impressions do not play a role in our subjectivity. This brings us back to the old ancient Platonic distinction between appearance and reality. Kant, idiosyncratically, Indeed, this is probably one of his primary philosophical innovations, responds to this distinction in his own unique way. Kant's distinction between noumena and phenomena, where the noumena is the thing in itself, that is, to say, the real object in the external world. Phenomena, on the other hand, are the things which appear to us as subjects. The noumenal world exists in themselves, independently of, the, of how they appear to us. The phenomenal world is that which appears to us. So, say the red cup on your desk in your room at night appears and is experienced differently than it would be experienced at midday. For Kant, we do not have a direct experience of the external object. We only have or we only know that which appears to us. This, it should be underscored, is not a form of solipsism. Solipsism, the idea that I am all that is the case. We must certainly, we most certainly can have knowledge of the external objective world through conceptual, shared, and cultural knowledge. But, we cannot directly know the totality of the object itself. The reason, only can only really experience it in profile how it appears to us. The reason that Kant is drawing this distinction is so as to illuminate how the phenomenal world we experience is understood. Our minds organize and synthesizes the flux of sense impressions we receive from the external world. The noumena, the thing in itself, certainly gives rise to our phenomenal experience of the external world, but any object in the external world cannot be understood in itself. So there's no cup in itself, if you think about it that way. The cup, our transcendental subjective experience of the cup, transcends itself. The cup basically transcends our experience of it. 
but it is not an object now Kant is using the term transcendence in a very idiosyncratic way even though he's using the word transcendence in an experience in a very idiosyncratic way I would wager but it is not an object of transcendence the cup is not an object of transcendence like say a god or spirit and here we can begin to glimpse the importance of Kant for all subsequent philosophy since that which is transcendent is not necessarily God, but the world itself. This will be of huge importance to Heidegger, Martin Heidegger's ontology and being in time, as well as many other existentialist philosophers. By transcendent, Kant means roughly that which is beyond experience. By transcendental, he means the structures of subjectivity which enable us to grasp the external world. And that's what... that's. I think transcendence comes from the Latin man. So a thing like transcend, transcendere, which means to, to step across, to step outside. And what is it that we're stepping outside to? It's the world itself. That's what Kant is trying to get to. Now, this all begs the question, how do we know that what appears to us, what appears to us directly refers to our corresponding object out in the real world? Kant's answer to this is the transcendental deduction this, I think, at least for me, is some of the most complicated elements of the critique of pure reason. But like many great philosophers, there is a simple enough idea uh, at heart. The first thing to understand is that the transcendental deduction is deductive, so it's not inductive. It's not something we can induce from experience, but rather is self-evident. It's sort of an a, a priori truth. We do not infer it from experience, but from the activity of reason itself. Or better from the self-evident activity of reason itself. Now, without going into the difference between necessary and sufficient conditions, Kant aims to show the what is necessary or essential of any experience. And thus, there's a pretty basic syllogism, logical syllogism, syllogism at, at work here. And I'll try to reconstruct this briefly here. But it is quite uh, quite complex, and and but the syllogism form is 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 is, is straightforward enough. So the syllogism form is uh, only if a then b. Uh, so only if a then b, b, which, we, which from which we can infer the conclusion a. Now that probably makes zero sense to you as I've said it. So let me try and put it in prose form. Only if we have a necessary condition for experience, then we can have an experience. I do have experiences. Therefore, the necessary conditions of experience are, are, are what gives us experience. Okay, so uh, now I've put a couple of examples in the, in the written lecture notes of this, but uh, let me try and give you, uh, uh, let me just focus on one here for the purpose of the podcast. So if, uh, so the most notable, I think the most famous application of the transcendental deduction, deduction relates to a unity of self across time. On the side of our subjectivity, the most basic principle is what Kant calls the transcendental unity of a perception. A perception. A perception means something like sort of metacognition, self-awareness, or perception of, of perception. So for Kant, the I think can be discovered in all my experiences. Not a million miles away from Descartes there. It is necessary that that I think is present, otherwise those experiences would not be mine. This principle, then, is descriptive of what it means for a consciousness to be continuously the same in time, for it to be able to have experience at all. This condition, the con this condition is that 
our everyday empirical consciousness always already, sort of intuitively prior, exist within them sort of a horizon of unity. So, I don't know, if you are experiencing, say, a, I don't know, if you're experiencing a cat on the roof of your shed, say, right? You know, it's no good asking someone else to understand what that's like because their experiences are not continuously unified as as, as, as yours. As Kant is pointing out, the principle is is analytic. It is a tautology to claim that the I is involved in the I think. But if we put it in sort of, if we put the prose in syllogistic form, we can try to get a, a sense of what he's getting at. Let's take another example then. If there is a unity of self across time, then can I experience music? Since I do experience music, therefore there must be a unity of self across time. Now Kant applies that deduction to a number of categories, such as quality, modality, relation, unity, plurality, causality. Now it's not necessary for our course to go into detail about those different categories again, but what is important for us to understand is what transcendental means. What the difference between numeral and phenomenal means, what is conditions of possibility means, and the importance of space and time, as well as the synthesis of concepts. In conclusion, then, Kant's response to the distinction between appearance and reality shows us how we think. More precisely, what are the key features which make thinking and experience possible? Thus, he is setting the limits of what we can and cannot know, or if you like, he is setting the parameters of all thinking. Furthermore, Kant, as he is often characterized, provides a, a resolution to debate a resolution of the debate between rationalist philosophers, say Leibniz and Descartes, and empirical philosophers, say Locke and Hume. In agreement with the empiricist, knowledge is derived from sense experience, but equally the ordering of ideas and thoughts are essential to the production of knowledge. This is not a superficial matter. All of Kant's distinctions attempt to draw together seemingly oppositional positions. In this way, Kant could be seen as a significant forerunner of Jack Derrida's deconstruction of binary oppositions. With Kant, we see the synthesis of matter and form, noumenal and phenomenal, sensibility and understanding, intuition and concepts. Broadly, Kant's picture of the human being requires that we think of ourselves primarily as subjective and embodied beings. Sensibility is spontaneous and receptive. Intuitions are automatically and immediately uh, given to the mind. Understanding is the feature of our interior, interior life that enables us to conceptualize the manifold of intuitions furnished by sensible experience. Both are necessary features of transcendental subjectivity. In terms of understanding Kant's importance for continental philosophy, more generally, we could look at Kant's skepticism of the noumenal or real world. Kant is certainly not a relativist, but in a week since we could understand his account of cognitive understanding as a form of interpretation of the real world. There was a short step from this point to hermeneutic philosophy and postmodern theory. If all knowledge is socially constructive, constructed, as the weak reading of postmodern theory might suggest, then we're not far removed from Kant's ideas about the limits of factual knowledge and objectivity. Indeed, Wood could draw a direct line from the opposition of the noumenal and the phenomenal to Derrida's account of all meaning being derived from a textual interpretation, which is a common reading of Derrida, although not an accurate one. 
More specifically, all of the concepts which we have spoken about in this lecture do find themselves into contemporary debates and contemporary continental philosophy, which forms itself on debates about matter and form, the real and the apparent, a temporal understanding of subjectivity, the reconciliation of succession and simultaneity, the one and the many, and the most important in my view, the account of the human being as an active being. So without Kant, we do not have Derrida, we do not have Foucault, Butler, Deleuze, Lyotard, and so on. It should now be further clear why this module is called Transcendence in the Body. A transcendence arises from, or is identical with, the philosophical inquiry into the distinction between empirism and reality. Kant firmly brings transcendence into the subject, at least in his epistemological work. The body, then, in an ordinary sense, evokes crude materialism, matter, and reductionism. In Kant, we see one of the first major and most significant philosophical drives to unite these seemingly oppositional and disparate concepts. Once we get to Merleau-Ponty, we will see that the historically situated body is the primary driver of our transcendence. Okay, let's leave it there for now. Talk soon.